Hello, I'm Professor Beverly Hunt. Uh, I work in London and I want to discuss postpartum hemorrhage with you today. This is a talk where we are looking at the global consequences of postpartum hemorrhage. I'm not concentrating on the practical side of it very much and I want to impassion you with the need to do more research in postpartum hemorrhage. So when we look at the figures, we know a woman dies of postpartum hemorrhage every four minutes. This is a horrific statistic that healthy women in the primes of their lives are dying of a potentially preventable problem. And when we look at those deaths, because of the much better healthcare we have in the developed world, 99% of those deaths are in low and middle income countries. And actually we're talking at a global level of 1 in 200 deaths in 2022 being due to postpartum hemorrhage. Now, can you imagine what it must be like if your mother dies of postpartum hemorrhage? And we are really talking in uh, low and middle income countries of multiparous women who probably have four or five children and they have uterine atony uh, and they're probably anemic and in their fourth or their fifth pregnancy they have postpartum hemorrhage, there's inadequate health care and they die. So we are left with a group of children who won't have a mother. They will have less good nutrition and the eldest will probably have to stay at home to look after the youngest. So we're talking about malnourished children who aren't going to receive education. Uh, the WHO have looked at the costs of this and it cost about 15 billion in lost productivity with these families without a mother. And this is, it's a right that countries should support maternal health. Uh, because if you don't have maternal health, you'll have an effect on economy uh, and also increase poverty. So we need to campaign to improve the care of women during pregnancy. Just stopping to remind you, what is the definition of postpartum hemorrhage? And if we look uh, at anything less than one litre, that counts for about 18% of pregnancies. What I'm really talking about today is those that are severe, so more than two litres, which occurs in about less than 1% of pregnancies, certainly uh, in the UK. So coming back to this as a global issue, this is the WHO every two years tell us why people die. We have about 55 million deaths a year and they put them uh, in different colours and you can see maternal disorders and the causes of death buried among all the infectious diseases colours. So we really lose out on w where they are dying. For me, I feel they need to be a separate colour to highlight this dreadful problem. 
If we look at the figures in a different way, we know about 300,000 women die from causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, and then when we look at hemorrhage itself, it accounts for about 40% of the deaths. We don't even know the exact number of women dying in North Africa because of the poor social status of women and the poor registration of their births and deaths. Uh, when we look at the modern world, about 16% of the deaths are due to postpartum hemorrhage. And here, let me show you the UK maternal triennial inquiry. We have a unique system in the UK. If a woman dies in pregnancy of six weeks after delivery, she gets a postmortem. So we know all of the causes of death. And despite modern advances, we still, every year, have a handful of women who die due to postpartum hemorrhage. Now, actually, that's very low when we compare it to low and middle income countries. Uh, it's still unacceptable, but we do have many ways of managing these women. So we can offer hysterectomy or, or radiological procedures as a life-saving measure in refractory PPH, which are not available in low and middle income countries. What we do know, and this is data from the USA, where 11% of maternal deaths are due to uh, postpartum hemorrhage, that if we have a protocol in place within the institution looking after the women, uh, where we have a way of dealing with the situation, which is protocolized, then we can move forward and reduce the rate. But one of the major factors is identification postpartum hemorrhage. So women need to be monitored postpartum pulse, blood pressure. And for most women, because they're very healthy, uh, their blood pressure will stay up till they are preterminal. And it's a rising pulse rate and respiratory rate that should indicate that this woman may be having a postpartum hemorrhage. And of course, it may be concealed blood. It may be the uterus filling up with blood. If we look at the primary causes of postpartum hemorrhage, the number one, as I mentioned earlier, is uterine atony, uh, much more frequent uh, with increasing number of pregnancies. Uh, and then we've got surgical traumas and then rising uh, numbers in the high income countries is misplaced placenta, placental previa or accretia. And this is actually becoming a bit of an issue because of the high rates of caesarean section that we see in New York State, for example, we now know that the most common cause of PPH is abnormal placentation. Uh, and China too, with its rising use of caesarean section, also has rising rates of placental abnormality. And what are the causes of abnormal placentation? It's previous uterine surgery, so previous caesarean section, previous accretion, increasing age, uh, and assisted re reproductive techniques. 
Yes, this is uh, a thrombosis and hemostasis section. And just to comment on thrombophilia and postpartum hemorrhage, we do have high rates of factor V Leiden in the European population. And the theory why it's so high is that it protects from excessive bleeding. Uh, and so uh, that uh, in times before we had good health care, uh, it would protect women from exsanguinating uh, at birth. And the other interesting work is looking at tissue factor and looking at the polymorphisms in tissue factor. And one that increases expression uh, shows lower rates of death due to post some hemorrhage. But really, we're in the modern world. We want to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. And I do think we have enough emphasis on this. The midwives are so important. We need to optimize hemoglobin early in pregnancy. So a woman doesn't reach uh, labor with a significant anemia. We need to identify those who have abnormal presentation, actively manage the third stage uh, and use uterotonics. Now, I'm going to stop here and ask you to think about anemia. It could well be a major factor of PPH in low and middle income countries. Because do you remember, if we look at the effect of hematocrit on the bleeding time, we have evidence that the more anemic you get, the longer it is to stop bleeding uh, and you lose axial flow once your hematocrit is less than 25%. So normally axial flow will push the red cells through the middle uh, of the vessel, pushing out the platelets and the plasma. So if there's a breach in the vessel, they are there and they can actually deliver and uh, clot and close the hole. With a hematocrit less than 25%, there's none of that there. The red cells get in the way and it just physically takes longer to clot. And as somebody who is very much involved in the woman's study, we did get hemoglobins from women in low income and middle income countries. And we were shocked at term at how low the hemoglobins were in some women. So can you imagine you are 20, you are in your fifth pregnancy You've never caught up on your iron uh, deficiency if, because you're having a baby every year. Your diet is poor in iron. Don't get iron in pregnancy. So the hemoglobin is lower every time. Then you have uterine atony. Imagining dealing with uterine atony and postpartum hemorrhage when the starting hemoglobin is 60 or 70 grams deciliter. That woman is condemned to bleed out because of this issue of her low hematocrit making her bleeding time longer. And of course, there is a difficulty in accessing blood components. So we have to remind ourselves that blood spike is fragile in low-income countries. Uh, most of the blood collected is in high-income countries. Um, and in 58 countries, more than 50% of the blood supply is still dependent on families finding replacements. 
So you would find that the woman would be offered a unit of blood, providing a family member was coerced into giving the unit, which of course is not good because they may or may not have viral problems. Uh, and then in high-income countries, we aren't perfect. So we've got huge variability in how we manage postpartum hemorrhage. Different countries have different reliances on uh, interventional radiology or surgery um, and what type of uterotonic they use. And then we have a, a terrible lack of evidence. We do not know how to adequately resuscitate a woman. Should we use a ratio of red cells, FFP, and platelets in a one-to-one -one ratio as in trauma? Or should we just get the red cells in there first? We still do not know. And let's just think about obstetric hemorrhage, because actually the woman is pre-prepared for obstetric hemorrhage. Pregnant women are in that proto-embotic state with high levels of bombolibran factor, and factor eight and fibrinolysis is switched off or we've got low levels of protein X. The problem for postpartum hemorrhage and like surgery and trauma is that visual assessment is very unreliable because we can have hidden bleeding in the uterus and the blood volume in pregnancy is much increased so the woman can tolerate blood loss before she starts developing um, changes in pulse and blood pressure. So if we just think about the fact, it, it's often said tone, trauma, tissue and thrombin, generating thrombin uh, is important uh, as a practical way of thinking about it. Uh, we know from previous data that fibrinogen levels fall in massive blood loss uh, and that data from Wales shows that if you use thromboelastography in postpartum hemorrhage, you can actually define and find those women who have started to bleed out. Uh, and this is amazing work from the husband and wife team of Peter and Rachel Collins. Uh, they have systematically approached use of thromboelastography and showed that if you measure the Fib10 in somebody who's bleeding out, because you're not sure whether they might be a minor bleed or a massive bleed, then you could get the fibrinogen and those who've got good fibrinogens, you can relax. Those who've got reduced fibrinogens, you can dedicate your attention to by giving blood transfusion. Uh, and they have done clinical trials to demonstrate that many of the women who apparently have a quite spectacular postpartum hemorrhage don't have the blood loss and that they uh, are actually having it. Blood loss can be overestimated, uh, but those that they could identify, they could use blood products in. And they actually saved on using blood products because they the take identified those women with problems. So the last agent to think about is tranosamic acid, that little tiny lysine binding analogue that interferes with the mechanism of fibrinolysis by binding to plasminogen and preventing it from sitting 
on fibrin or fibrinogen. And we had the woman's study, 10 years old now, where they looked at the use of TXA on death, hysterectomy, and surgical interventions and thromboembolic events. We're talking uh, about a study where we had uh, 20,000 women uh, who were randomized to receive TXA after postpartum hemorrhage or suspected postpartum hemorrhage. If you look at the breakdown, they're very similar to uh, other postpartum hemorrhages seen uh, in developed and low and middle income countries. And when we look at when these women died, it's fairly shocking in that most of them who died due to bleeding died within the first 24 hours. And indeed, they essentially came into the hospital and exsanguinated, or they were already there exsanguinating. When we look at the final outcome of five years of work randomizing these women, we find that the use of TXA reduces death due to bleeding in women with PPH. And most importantly, there was no increase in thromboembolic events, as there has not been in other uses of TXA in a one-off way, for example, as with trauma. And when we look at how TXA helps, we've got these big trials. We've got the PPH trial, the woman trial, and CRASH-2, and we're comparing the outcomes on this forest bot. And you can see TXA is better if you give it within three hours delivery or three hours of injury with trauma. But if you give it late, and that's after three hours, it may worsen outcome. And this is probably because if a woman is bleeding and continues to bleed after three hours, they will be descending into disseminated intravascular coagulation. This is a, another way of looking at that data, showing that the earlier you get, give it, the better the survival. Uh, and if you delay giving it for every 15 minutes, you're decreasing survival by about 10%. So the woman trial was instrumental in making people think about doing more pragmatic trials uh, in postpartum hemorrhage, and it also ended up being a recommendation to use TXA on the WHO guidance. However, other trials, such as this very large one, three, so it's 4,000 women who were given TXA, uh, and then the rates of bleeding after TXA were assessed, showed very little difference. So we don't really need to give it in a preventative way. The only issue in this trial was that women had higher rates of nausea and vomiting uh, if they got TXA, but still very minor. And I think we need to think about the fact we are inhibiting fibrinolysis of TXA. And if you look at the tiny data that exists looking at fibrinolysis in women, postpartum, you'll find that they do not have activation of fibrinolysis at that time. So there is nothing to block. So 
The most important thing I would want to emphasize that we need to standardize protocols for management of postpartum hemorrhage. This goes back to the American trial showing if you have a protocol and you deliver blood products uh, in a good way, according to your pr protocol, you will reduce the use of blood products and you will reduce the need for peripartum hysterectomy. So what are we doing? for massive obstetric blood loss. And this, I put 2019 because it hasn't changed. You were meant to be giving TXA stat. If oh, you're using thromboelastography, brilliant. You can use the FibTem to help guide products. If you don't have it, you would give blood products. And after they'd stop bleeding, you wouldn't stop and say, uh, I don't think they need thromboprophylaxis. They need thromboprophylaxis because they've got higher rates of uh, thrombosis. What is the evidence for our practice? Well, brilliant for TXA. For all the other blood products, we do not have randomized controlled trials. And we have to address this as a community. So to remind you, the woman study was groundbreaking 20,000 women in an emergency situation randomized to drug versus placebo we can do it we need an international effort to make us concentrate on pph to improve the care and we can do pragmatic clinical trials but we've got lots of other things we need to do what are the hemostatic changes in pph where are the papers showing us what level of fibrolytic activation there is and how the factors fall or don't fall as a woman uh, leads out. We have got to improve the availability of blood and TXA in those middle income countries. It's there. It's a WHO improved drug. One gram of TXA costs five dollars and yet so many countries do not have the drug in their hospital pharmacies. We need trials. And perhaps one of the bigger ones is, do we need FFP upfront as trauma trials suggest? So thank you for listening. I hope you become as impassioned about trying to improve women's health as I have become. Thank you.